right. It is the week of August 21st, 2023, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and today we're going to cover four main topics. First up, a major update in the UFC antitrust lawsuit. And I'm not talking about the class certification, which happened while I was gone. And of course, we're going to dive into in depth in this episode because of all the ramifications and there's finally movement in the case. I mean, finally, it's it's just, of course, we're going to get into that. But earlier today, there was a status conference on the lawsuit that yielded some pretty interesting results, including a tentative month for a trial date, which is a big deal in itself and is coming up very quickly, as well as a not-so-fun spooky surprise for the UFC come this Halloween. I'll explain what that means and dive into all these details in our first segment. Lots to unpack there. Just just a plethora of things we need to go through. Uh, then we're going to talk about the ESPN Pen deal, which will create the ESPN Bet Sportsbook. Obviously, a big move by ESPN and Disney, huge ramifications for them, and as has been a tradition at this point on the show, we are going to have to take a look at Disney's overall strategy because since we last talked, it has pivoted again to, some might say, a whole new world, see what I did there, of thinking and possibilities that will definitely, definitely affect the UFC ESPN media rights negotiations coming up in my mind. It's, it's something that not a lot of people are talking about, especially in this space, because it, it's so far back and it has to do with Bob Iger and some new, new situations that have arisen at Disney. I'm going to go in depth on that a little bit to explain how this could all wrap around and affect the UFC media rights deal coming up shortly, especially with the UFC and WWE merging. Lots of big things to unpack there. Again, tons of information. Then we're going to talk about PFL potentially acquiring Bellator. So that's been a rumor that's been going around for a while. I'm going to tell you what I've heard from various people or the rumors I've heard and what it means. You know, is it happening? Is it not? All that fun stuff. But more so, we're going to take a look at a couple of the assumptions people are making if this deal goes through and what it really means for the industry and the strategy in, as it relates to the newly formed entity of PFL and Bellator, if that does happen, and the UFC. Because I've heard a lot of people saying, oh, this is going to allow PFL to really catch up and become a strong number two, maybe even compete with the UFC one day, especially with Francis Ngannou and all the other stuff going on. I've also heard, oh, I mean, you know, UFC might acquire Bellator. They need to step in and acquire Bellator to stop PFL, blah, blah, blah. We've got to talk about, again, what this looks like from a macro picture because I don't think people, I think people are missing the force for the trees here. So we got to dive into it. And last but not least, we are going to talk about Sean O'Malley given his performance this past weekend at UFC 292. Is he a superstar? Been seeing a lot of things, been seeing particular moves by the UFC uh, pushing O'Malley hearing a lot of numbers on the gate and the draw and all blah, blah, blah. We need to talk about whether or not O'Malley is truly a superstar. And if he is, where does he rank in superstardom compared to someone like Israel Adesanya or John Jones? Is he going to be a crossover star? Is he the next potential McGregor? Yeah, I know I'm throwing it out there. I know some of you are rolling your eyes. I will explain in that segment. So 
I know a little bit of a long intro, but it's been a while, so, so happy to be back. And with that in mind, timestamps at the bottom. Let's go ahead and dive right in. All right, first thing we need to talk about, of course, is the major update in the UFC antitrust lawsuit. Finally, finally, it's been so long, so, so long. But finally, Judge Bulware has granted class certification. His report was pretty pretty damning, honestly, uh, against the UFC. A lot of personal opinions, uh, a lot of pretty harsh words, in my opinion. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't typically read law- you know, legalese or lawyer documents. Um, but I did have a friend of mine who's a lawyer look over and said, yeah, it's pretty clear where his, his opinion lies. It's, it's pretty, you know, tends to be harsher words, um, regarding the class cert. And yeah, I mean, he, he came out pretty much in full force against the UFC, at least as it retains to class certification. First thing we have to lay the ground rules on with this is that this does not mean that they are in a prime position to win a trial this does not mean that you know it looks like the ufc is in real bad shape uh, any of that stuff all this means is that given the evidence that was there and presented um the judge felt strongly that class certification was warranted Specifically, he mentions, you know, stuff that UFC employees like Joe Silva and um, forget his name, the former vice president of business or or a a VP mentions essentially like we never let a fighter get to their fourth contract if they have a four fight contract. After their third, we're always renegotiating so that they never hit that fourth contract and they basically are stuck in this perpetual loop of fighting for us or as long as they're winning, right? And we're not cutting them, uh, fighting for us and then retiring, especially if they're a big name fighter. That That's the gist of it. And we've talked about those tactics on this podcast before. This stuff has been talked about since 2015 with the OGs of, you know, John Nash, Paul Gift and Jason Cruz, who have done fantastic work on this. Um, especially Jason Cruz. I feel like he doesn't get enough love on the legal side of things personally. I mean, Anyway, uh, but the lawsuit itself, you know, used specific models and and methodology where Bulware paused this, right, until a parallel case that was going on, which involved the tuna company, um, kind of reaffirmed that these models were okay to use in class cert. Like, I... The best as I can explain is why this class certification has taken so long. Because keep in mind that we went into a conference call sometime during the week and Bullware on the call was like, I'm going to have this class cert written up by Monday and indicated by all means that he was going to, uh, he was going to certify the class. Like this isn't a shock that he's actually certified the class. That was pretty much a guarantee given how that call went, in my opinion. But that call was years ago. And he said, like, I'll have it to you by Monday. And then just years, right? The 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 parable of, you know, I'm going out to get a pack of cigarettes. I'll be right back. Comes back years later. That's basically what happened here. Um, reason why being that, again, Bulwer was waiting for this other case to resolve 
so there wasn't a conflict and so that it didn't, you know, mess up his ruling and, and leave more grounds for appeal possibly. Right. Um, so it gets resolved and then he still takes his time, right? Like, cause that got resolved at the end of 2022, I believe. So, I mean, we are eight months in eight and a half months in, uh, to 2023 and we're just now getting this class cert, but nevertheless, it is here. It is finally done. And it only pertains to class certification. Boulware points out again, like as he's going through and, and using these seemingly harsh, you know, edicts against, uh, edicts isn't the right word, uh, just hard criticisms, harsh criticisms uh, against the UFC or what may seem like harsh criticisms to the layman in his ruling, he clarifies again and again that as it relates to class certification, as to whether or not class certification should occur or not, yes, this holds up. And, you know, that's a big win for the plaintiffs nonetheless, right? I've seen some other people uh, say, like, this was the biggest hurdle the plaintiffs had to do. Now, I mean, from here, it's 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 going to get only easier and this is a huge win for them it is in some ways i think it's not the biggest win until it clears appeal which we'll get into here in a second regarding the status conference that happened today but um but yeah i mean if this holds up it's huge if this either survives appeal or doesn't get appealed this is pretty massive because that class certification will almost certainly tip and force the UFC's hand into trying to settle in some way, shape, or form. Now, there are plenty of different ways this can be appealed. The UFC is already filing for appeal, which we knew they were going to do from the start. Um, It's all going to come down to whether or not the appeals court takes it, and they are in a little bit of a time crunch, which, again, we'll get into here in a sec. But this particular class cert and some of the things mentioned, including potential injunctive relief, um, which the plaintiffs haven't really listed yet. They asked, you know, essentially to be able to pursue injunctive relief, but they didn't specify what they really wanted. And then the UFC came back and said, like, they're asking for, you know, to pursue injunctive relief, we don't even know what that means. Like, what are they trying to do here? And basically said they shouldn't be allowed to do this, et cetera. Um, and in today's conference call, essentially a judge said, no, they can pursue it and make arguments and they are going to be due in October. And so you're going to have to, you know, get me arguments on for and against injunctive relief and what injunctive relief actually means from the plaintiff's perspective. And, then I'll make a ruling on it later this year in a couple months, which is again, very fat compared to very, very fast compared to the snail's pace. This trial has been going. So we'll see what that turns up, but th- this is definitely not a good thing for the UFC. And a, a, it is a good thing for the plaintiffs. It's not this end all be all thing that I see multiple people making it. It's step one. It's the very first step in getting change enacted either through um, 
changing of contracts, right? Like essentially eliminating long-term contracts. Uh, John Nash mentioned something regarding, you know, a possible injunctive relief could be that contracts go from, you know, these certain amount of fights over five years or whatever, et cetera, to, you know, one to two year max contracts, regardless of championship status, all that fun stuff. Also, another possibility is to suspend exclusivity in contracts for four or five years, which has happened in another case, which is a big deal because, I mean, could you imagine if right now all of a sudden all of the UFC champions are free agents, which we will talk about because, again, a little bit of force for the trees there. But, I mean, it's a it's a big deal, right? Like, it, it could end up being a huge thing um, if that actually goes through. In terms of what happens now, UFC will appeal, and in today's press conference, Judge Bulware said, look, we're going to make this a speedy trial. We're going to, you know, fast track this trial. We are aiming to have and set a trial date for either March or April of 2024, which is huge. I mean, that is six months away, six, seven months away. That's nuts compared to the rest of the speed of this trial. It's not that nuts if you think about a regular court case, but given how slow this has gone, it's like we went from zero to 60, right? Like just holy crap. That's now coming up in you know, March, April wild. And that it would be a four to five week trial is, is what he had stated, which again, makes sense if that's actually, you know, going to trial and, and and we'll talk about that in a sec, but uh, I mean, March, April of, of next year, folks, that's, that's wild. I I still can't wrap my head around that. Uh, (laughs) Other things that were brought up in the, conference today outside of that fun bit of information and as well the you know uh dates for arguments regarding injunctive relief is that there's also arguments uh you know to be had regarding certain information to be released where essentially the judge has stated that come october 31st the entire record outside of names, health information, like identifying personal PII stuff, essentially, if you know what that means, personal identifying information. Um, All of that's going to be unsealed, which is going to be a huge treasure trove of documents we're going to get to look through. That's going to be super fun. So if you remember, again, when, you know, this first ramped up again, which would have been, what, 2019, uh, when, you know, you had some of these, examples come out you had the the original cases being heard by bullware and you had some new financial information and business practices you had some of those joe silva emails and all that fun stuff coming out we got a lot of that and that was awesome info just to learn about how you know the business actually worked but so much of it was still redacted that will now be completely reversed we're gonna get to see everything all the exhibits, all the, you know, fighter presentation stuff, the fighter writers, all the, all that fun, all that fun stuff that we were like, man, I wish we could have seen what numbers these were here, here, and here. We're going to get to see them all, which is awesome. 
it's going to happen on Halloween, according to Judge Bulwer, is that it's going to unseal the whole record October 31st of this year. So mark the day. I know I have that I'm going to be looking through those documents and just having a ball. I'm sure a lot of other people will. Um, I don't know if you'll see me write an article for sure, dog, to do that. It's been a long time since I've written, but like, I mean, that might warrant it. I'll definitely do an emergency podcast or just focus my FPP, FBP around it uh, that week on that stuff for sure. But yeah, it's, it's huge news, folks. The, I don't know what information we're going to find out. We're probably going to find out like how much money Brock Lesnar ever made in the UFC and like what McGregor's paydays were and percentages with pay-per-view points and stuff, stuff that's going to be very important in terms of getting out there and really shining a light on the UFC's business practices, stuff that, you know, someone as myself, who's a strategy geek is going to just dissect and analyze all day long to be like, wow, this, this was the tactic they used. This was a move here. Well, that's, you know, cause obviously it worked for him. Uh, but we're going to get to see how much of, how much of negotiation and of payouts and overall corporate strategy was based around particular fighter cost notions, I would say, right? There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things out there on both sides that are, you know, maybe a little, you, you could say it because there's no definitive proof about whether or not, uh, you know, fighters were given X amount of money here or, you know, UFC was doing this type of business practice. We're going to see so much. That's basically, and uh, yeah, it's, if I get too into it, I could just ramble most of this podcast about what I think we could see out of these documents. I'm very, very excited to see the whole unsealed record. You should be too. It's going to be a fun, fun time. Um, but yeah, so that's a that's a big big deal. And then the other thing coming out of this press conference is that essentially the Johnson and Zufa separate case, right? You had Cajun Johnson bring this lawsuit as well. That was similar type deal, uh, same type of thing, saying hey, like UFC is is doing me wrong, and it's for fighters too or 2017 and beyond, right? Because this really encompasses 2010 to 2017. So Cajun Johnson's lawsuit stems from really the Endeavor era. Once they took over and, and kind of started running things, that trial is separate and that discovery can begin. So there will be new documents talking, coming in and coming out of that. And we're going to have people talking about that as well. It's not nearly as big a case, um, you know, which you feel for Cajun Johnson there a little bit, but we might still get some really good info on the business side of things. And given how this went, you never know how the Johnson case might actually go. So discovery for the Johnson case is going to begin. It will be separate from this. Uh, they're, they're just saying Kung Lee, Lee V. Zufa. Uh, obviously, Involves John Fitch, uh, lots of other fighters. Nate Quarry, who was a part of it, is no longer a part of it because he was going for the identity class and that was not certified. So he's out of the lawsuit. But um, 
you know, this represents, I think, 1,200 fighters, 1,200-ish fighters. So it's it's a big deal that this certification happened. Uh, it's a real big thorn in the UFC and Endeavor side, too. A little bit less so for Endeavor, given that they've spun off the UFC and merged it with WWE and created TKO, um, which this will be finalized, the deal between WWE and UFC. That will be finalized before any real problems, I think, uh, stem out of this pop up if the UFC loses in certain ways, right? Like if the grant, uh, grant, if the judge grants injunctive relief, right? That won't happen until after the TKO company, whatever it's called, TKO holdings is complete. It's formed. So should that happen, TKO will be responsible for dealing with all that funness while Endeavor yeah, they own 51%, so it's, I mean, not great for them. They've got a little bit of, of shielded coverage here. Mind you, it's hard not to think about this whole deal happening, and uh, especially with some of the delays in this case, and there not being a coincidental movement by Endeavor to spin off the UFC, you know, just a few months before all of a sudden it comes out that the class certification is, is good to go and injective relief could pop up, et cetera, et cetera. It, it was smart business strategy by Endeavor because it shields them. Now they got to unload a bunch of their debt. They still get 51% ownership of this company, which means they're still able to use a lot of the revenue generated by GKO, but they're not the main company on the hook for any issues that arise from this lawsuit, right? It's still UFC that's going to have to deal with it. And now WWE possibly dealing with it. So fun times ahead for TKO if this turns bad for the UFC. Um, in terms of where this goes next, again, it's going to be appealed. The fact that Bullwear is fast-tracking this case means that there is a window and a possibility that the appeals court does not pick this up, right? They're going to have only so many days like i think i mean if trial is aiming to start in march or, or april i mean you got six months to basically quickly write your appeal for, if you're the ufc which again they've already you know been doing um and then the appeals court has to make a decision on this pretty fast and there's a solid chance they might not run with it just because of the time frame. Um, I think they will personally, just because this is the type of lawsuit that would have ramifications if it went to trial, um, some big ramifications if it went to trial. And in my experience, right, like the bigger, more visible cases tend to be picked up by the appeals and upper courts, anything where it can make kind of a, a big splash or wave. Do I think it's going to go to the Supreme court or anything like that? No, I, I would be shocked if it went all the way to the Supreme court, but the first appeals court, I got to imagine it's going to get picked up in the, the first round of appeals. Um, it would shock me if it doesn't. Not saying it won't happen, especially with the time frame and everything else going on, but I I feel 
pretty strongly that my gut is saying it will be. And on appeal, as noted by Paul Gift, uh, who's done a whole fantastic article about uh, this stuff, right? There, there are four methods or, or possibilities that the UFC can use to try and get this overturned on appeal. Some of the key arguments that Bulware has made here does not have great support. And, and it's definitely, there are holes that are open that the UFC can poke through to convince appellate judges to possibly, you know, uh, overturn stuff, overturn the class certification. Um, will that happen or not? It's hard to say, you know, I don't, I, I can't get into that because it, it's too early, but I, I can't imagine this not going to appeal, I guess is where I'm going to end on that particular piece of this. Um, I feel like it has to. So the UFC in the meantime, while they're waiting to see if the appeals court will actually grant them this appeal and run with it, um, they're going to be prepping for a possible trial and almost certainly working on deals, right? Like they're probably waiting and, and in the, right now in the background, developing strategies and figuring out offers that they could give the plaintiffs to make this go away. Because if class cert survives appeals and we go to a trial, the last thing the UFC wants to do is roll the dice with the trial, especially given the way the class certification went, Right. It's just not something that the UFC really wants to have to deal with. Um, and while Bulware, again, was pretty within the lines in terms of saying this is regarding class cert, that, you know, this, this, and this are pretty clear, et cetera. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean um, that the UFC is guilty of XYZ arguments, except basically saying like, look, I'm not judging, giving summary judgment here and doing all this stuff. I'm just saying like, based on class certification, it seems pretty clear that the UFC, you know, did create this issue. This should be class certified, et cetera. I mean, they'll have bullware in the trial, right? It's not going to go to another judge if it survives class certification, especially if appeals doesn't pick it up. It's not going anywhere. It's going to be back to bullware. And the UFC reading that, I mean, that's not what you want to see from your trial judge. That aside, you never want to risk, you know, rolling the dice in something like this type of class action and why you see so many other class action lawsuits settled because the damages can get insane, right? I think the damages estimated are around 800 million and 1.6 billion. And then, you know, those can get doubled and tripled in these types of cases. So you could end up with the UFC owing something like $5 billion to the fighters, which would be obviously a huge problem for the new TKO holdings company. Um, so they're going to look for any way out that they can possibly find, whether that's some type of negotiation regarding contract length, uh, a monetary settlement of an undisclosed sum to the current plaintiffs. I mean, if class cert survives and we go to trial, they're looking to deal. Whether or not the fighters take the deal, that's a whole different 
question, right? But I mean, they're not out of the woods yet is all I'm trying to say. This does not mean, holy crap, we're going to trial. UFC is going to be dealing with all this stuff. No, got to wait for appeals. That's the big question mark is, is appeals going to pick this up or not? I think they will. If they do, then we just basically start all over. Um, it lengthens everything out, which again, works in the UFC's favor because the longer this goes on, the more that they can establish their band power. And we've already seen it, right? They're, they're letting, you know, fighters, fighters go like Francis and Ganu. They're, they're picking up Dana White contender series folk nonstop. I mean, they're, they're not worried, uh, about the future at this point. They've got brand supremacy in their mind and, and they're exercising it very well. Um, but you know, this, this can really upend them financially change the whole free agency dynamic, right? Um, could open up a lot of things with contracts. My guess is they would be more willing to budge on contracts rather than pay out huge monetary sums just because of the debt they're still carrying. I mean, yes, they've been incredibly profitable, but they need to pay down that debt and interest rates are still going up and the feds is hinting at even more rate hikes, which is not great from the UFC's perspective. Um, and the big thing here that I keep seeing, and I don't think people have really thought about, this is where I mentioned the forest for trees earlier is that let's say, right. Let's say injunctive relief is passed and there's no more exclusivity on contracts for the next five years, right? That's huge in a lot of ways, right? So if, if I'm fighting for the UFC at any point, I can entertain offers from PFL, Bellator, one championship, et cetera. That's massive, right? But based on the current dynamic in the industry and market share in the industry, there isn't a true competitor out there that can really pay to shake things up enough, in my opinion, to take away their the UFC's brand power. Can they erode it a little bit? Sure. But really only long term, right? There's no company out there that can go out and if, again, all champions become free agents tomorrow, there's no company that can go out there and get you know, half of the UFC champions under payroll the next day. Now, I say that. There is the possibility that, again, with the Qatari Investment Fund and PFL rumors and all that fun stuff, right? Um, I mean, if Saudi money or, or Qatari money or, you know, any of those sheiks out there with just just millions upon millions, right? Look, look at what live golf did, which resulted in live and PGA merging and that whole fun scenario. I mean, as it stands, if they wanted to get involved in MMA and just throw money at stuff that changes the entire scenario, right? If, if all of a sudden PFL wakes up, tomorrow with a $300 million war chest because the Qataris have decided to go all in on this, especially given that exclusivity contracts are gone. Well, then that's a whole new world. That's a whole new, I mean, then you could literally see 
a a fractured UFC roster that would certainly start to erode UFC brand supremacy and really, really hurt the UFC or potentially hurt the UFC long term, right? It would test it. It would test it at the the ultimate test for the UFC or the biggest test the UFC would have to fight in ages. Um, probably ever. Because it would essentially say, okay, if we took away half your champions, according to you, UFC, you're this marketing machine. It's the brand that draws the fans. If we took away half of your champions right now, especially if we took away some of the most popular ones, we took away Adesanya, we took away O'Malley, we took away uh, John Jones, take them away, and uh, are you able to still draw the numbers you want? And are they not going to have fans instead flock over to PFL, right? Even then for PFL, it's a whole weird concept because you have the tournament style and you'd probably have to shake that up a little bit. I mean, again, if they acquire Bellator, you could have a different league type format or something going on. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it would be a true test. You'd start to really see like whether or not, you know, the UFC brand power can you know hold fast but barring that happening and even if that does happen i think the ufc at least holds its brand power in the very very short term um but then you'd have a true chance for pfl to actually compete to become the number one promotion um but barring that happening i mean there's no one out there who can who can pay these guys more, right? Like, Nganu is is a rarity. I mean, as we're going to talk about in the PFL acquiring Bellator, PFL is not making money. They are burning through a lot of money. They're supposedly going to be profitable in 2024, okay? And that could be, again, with certain investments. Great. But they're not profitable right now. And if they acquire Bellator, that will make them even less profitable. So. It's a scenario of how many people can they actually buy? How many champions can they actually get to move over? How many champions would actually refuse to go over there because they want to stay in the UFC because of certain loyalties, right? Because you know there are a couple of fighters that are like, I'm not going over here, blah, blah, blah. You talk about MMA management and their type of monopoly and the things that have been out there about managers working with the UFC, which we all know the three or four that are pretty much in the UFC's pocket. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine that even if contract exclusivity goes away, suddenly, you know, PFL becomes a real threat. Because PFL, Bellator, and one are all losing money. PFL, the least amount, but still, I mean, UFC, on the other hand, is making money literally hand over fist. Nearly a billion dollars in profit. I mean, it's it's going to be... If the UFC really wants to, they can start to eat into their margins and keep all their fighters. If they're really that worried about brand, brand supremacy, right? So important to remember that through all of this. Um, 
because I keep hearing injunctive relief could change the game. I mean, maybe, yes, it, it would. Long-term, sure. It could, it could really end up spicing things up and, you know, causing new champions that are, or new stars, right? Like, like if we're talking about Sean O'Malley possibly being a star, he can jump ship and then newer fans start to go with him. They're not super UFC fans yet. Yeah, sure. But right now it's not a, too many people think like, oh my gosh, that's it. Like this, it's going to be like the Ali act. No, Ali act is a completely different beast where suddenly everybody can have their own belts and there's a separate like that. That's an overnight change that literally demolishes the UFC's brand in ways that are very hard to come back from. I feel like, um, contract exclusivity, it's a big deal, but it's not, it's not that same type of blow. So that covers most of the, UFC antitrust lawsuit update. Um, really good articles out there. Again, at Bloody Elbow by John Nash, um, Forbes for uh, Paul Gift. I'm sure Sure Dog has a couple as well. Um, so I mean, check those out. Uh, but I mean, those two and and you know anything Jason Cruz has written on MMA, written on MMA payout. Those are the three OGs. So I always shout them out with this stuff. And of course, they covered it all in depth with a lot of the finer details of this. But the bigger picture again, a it's, it's not over yet. The fat lady hasn't even begun to sung appeals could undo all of this. Uh, B we are going to get everything unsealed come October 31st, which will be a fun treasure trove of stuff to go through and see, uh, you know, the ramifications and injunctive relief that I keep hearing about. Sure. Change things and are big, but not, not short-term big. Long-term, yes, UFC has a problem. They have to find ways to keep their brand power and keep certain people happy, especially if they get that McGregor type of star power. Because, I mean, that's a big deal, right? McGregor goes to PFL or some stuff. Well, okay. Regularly on PFL show, shows, I mean, at this point, his star power has faded a little bit, right? I mean, it's not like tough ratings have been through the roof. But... um but still, right, if you get another superstar and then they hop ship, uh, it could cause a lot of problems. But short term, it's not that. It's really not. Monetary monetary damages are much more of a problem for the UFC in the short term. That's something they have to look out strategy-wise. So let me know if you have any questions over all of this. I know it's a lot. I know I rambled a little bit, but it was important to go down those rabbit holes. Uh, yeah, let me know because it's exciting times. Finally, finally, y'all. We have some movement on this lawsuit. Thank goodness. All right. Next up, we need to talk about the ESPN Penn deal, where Penn has agreed to Penn Entertainment. That is, I just keep saying Penn, but Penn Entertainment, which is a sports book, has essentially agreed to create a new sports book called ESPN Bet. Uh, with Disney's ESPN. And so as part of this deal, Penn agreed to sell its existing Barstool sports brand back to founder Dave Portnoy, which is wild. And a whole nother story we won't get into, but that guy made a bunch of money selling it and now he just got it back, which is crazy. Um, and ESPN bet will debut in the fall of this year. Uh, they've ex Penn has secured ESPN bets exclusive right to trademark for 10 years with an option to extend it another 10 uh, 
um, and is expected to add about $500 million to $1 billion in annual long-term adjusted earnings potential in this particular segment. Um, ESPN, on the other hand, will get $1.5 billion in cash over the next decade and grant, uh, you know, granted about $500 million worth or 31.8 million uh, shares worth of options, warranties for Penn stock with the ability to appoint a board of director after three years. So this partnership is basically Disney saying, all right, I'm going to go ahead and get ESPN into the gambling space. We're going to have an ESPN bet sports book with their branding. Uh, you know, that's going to yield a ton of opportunities. If you haven't seen UFC or PFL or, you know, baseball name, name a sport on right now. Uh, betting is everywhere. Now this type of Renaissance again is new for the U S because of things that were, you know, the, the way, the way to, sports gambling was only recently paved in the U S right. Um, once you had essentially the, the ban overturned, we've seen more and more States start to legalize gambling and become a bigger deal. And now all of a sudden it's everywhere. I mean, if you're watching a fight, you got Mindy, Minty bets, you know, PFL has, you know, coachman, Jonathan coachman from WWE on doing betting stuff. I mean, right. Like you, you've, Betting is everywhere. This is not uncommon and hasn't been uncommon in European countries or in Australia uh, for a long time. When I visited Australia in 2014, when I was a, a youngin um, and backpacked out there, uh, they, I mean, betting was everywhere. Uh, you had tab things you'd go in and just have every game imaginable, every bet, you, could, you know, it was just a normal thing. Like you can bet on, just about everything. It's a big thing shown everywhere. It was just part of the culture, right? Uh, that's what the U.S. is going through now. And you'd best believe that with ESPN Bet launching, uh, they're going to be talking about MMA, but also you know basketball, football, all, all this stuff. You're going to see you know, Sports Center is going to have betting odds everywhere. I, I guarantee you can go to ESPN bat and get a, get a bonus. If you do this, I mean, all those DraftKings apps or ads and app ads, things and bad things. Sorry. It's been a, been a week. Um, but all, all those advertisements, and all that stuff or, or uh, everything you see in terms of like, Oh, download the MGM bet sports script. You know, that's going to be going hard on ESPN, which is again, the worldwide home of sports and the, the most recognizable sports network in the U S by far. So of course they're going to brand it is ESPN bet. And the thought is this is going to bring in tons of money. Now, in order for this deal to really pay off for ESPN, given the licensing, right. And that the fact that part of the money coming to them is through stock options and warranties and all this stuff. Cause it makes it a really long-term deal, right? It's a, it's a 10 year deal. Essentially. If you think about this minimum, could it get extended? Sure. But like for 10 years, Penn entertainment gets to say ESPN bet and you know, they're, they're in business and their brand name is tied to that company. Um, in order for this to really work, Penn is still going to have to 
gain a fair amount of new market share, right? Like as you go into more and more states that are legalizing things and are attracting new customers, you're going to have to be able to still gain a fair amount of those users. I mean, it's, it's just, you, there's no way around it, especially given how much money Penn is shelling out. Like you're going to have to win, be the leader in winning those users, but then you're also going to have to differentiate your app enough that, you know, it's going to really want people to flock to you. Hypothetically, you know, you're going to take your competitors, customers, you're going to be the de facto betting app with a name like ESPN, certainly possible. Um, but the functionality of the app has to be tight, right? I mean, which Penn Entertainment is a known name, so it's not like this is somebody getting into the space brand new. That would be a whole other scenario with far more pitfalls. But still, they're outside of just renaming and saying, hey, we're ESPN, you're going to have to make sure you're differentiated enough and you're, you've got you know, the key things that gamblers are going to want so that you're able to retain their user, you know, basically stopping churn, which I can go into a whole thing about the strategy of, you know, um, net, what is it called? The net score. Um, I'm uh, blanking on it, but essentially the score of, are you a, champion of something or you detractor and then you get a net score um through surveys and then you're basically that gives you an idea of what your churn is and churn comes down to how many customers are you losing how many customers are signing up how many are you losing you always want to be in a position where you're obviously signing up more people who aren't leaving the platform and are continually using it so they're gonna have to reduce churn and they're gonna have to you know have champions for the app, their app and they're gonna be able to do a lot of things that aren't just, Hey, we slapped ESPN on this app we made, right? Like they, they've got to be good because if they're not, it's not only going to hurt pen obviously, but it's also probably going to hurt ESPN in the long term Cause this is a long-term investment bet. Um, I think it's a good deal for them cause it's pretty low risk on ESPN side to get in this way. It allows them to, you know, explore the gambling space, which is always where this was going, right? We talked about Endeavor buying MGM Arena and doing all that fun stuff and creating, you know, this is this is going to be a booming industry for a while. You're going to see more and more states legalize gambling. You're going to see more and different ways to bet and different things to bet on. A lot of money to be made. Like, it's going to be a, a booming industry for a bit, I would imagine bar some, you know, populist reversal in social norms where all of a sudden, like we're, we're talking about a true reversion to like, no, this is, you know, this is sin. Like we're canceling all gambling. I, I, I can't imagine there's too much revenue for the States at this point. Right. Same with you think about legalizing marijuana. And again, we're not getting into moral discussions here. It's just from a business standpoint, I mean, there's too much money to be made. So this is only going to grow, is my point. Uh, several other states are trying to set up casinos, trying to get things passed. They're working on it. Um, with that being said, behind the scenes, there's a lot more turmoil going on at Disney again, right? Um, 
Bob Iger's not having a great time in his second run as Disney CEO. You've seen him do some important cost reduction. He, you know, he thinks he's on track to reduce costs by about $5 billion or so um, shortly, I believe by either end of this year or end of 2024, which is impressive given where, you know, some of those costs were for Disney under Chapek um, before Iger came back. But, but obviously a, a huge part of that has been, there's been a lot of layoffs. There's been a lot of talk from Bob saying like, Hey, we're going to sell off a lot of this. We're going to strip this down to our core focus, which is we want to, you know, what's the core IP that makes us a lot of money our parks, which is driving huge revenue and is bouncing back in a big way. Wasn't bouncing back nearly as much um, under Chappic now seems to be making a, a pretty good recovery here. Um, and then streaming, which is what we're going to focus on because it relates to media rights deals. Right. Um, but I mean, they're, they're really trying to kind of cut some of the fat and bloat that's occurred in the past decade or so. And keep in mind, again, 2010 to 2020 was this huge bull market run and this huge growth above everything phase. Didn't matter about if you're actually profitable, didn't matter how how much, you know, you know, money you were losing at any given time, were you generating more revenue overall? Were you growing? So if okay, I wasn't generating revenue overall, but I got five new locations in a matter of months, right? It was just this excess of hey as long as you're growing we're gonna throw money at you and that's what you know private equity firms did that's what wall street did and it led to this huge bull market run but conversely it also led to problems when that started to turn and when you hit the pandemic and that's generated a whole new macroeconomic environment because what goes up must go down where all of a sudden it's like oh we need actual profits now interest rates are no longer like nothing it's not free to borrow money anymore which was the case right like as long as it was free to borrow money even if we're not 100 percent on this we're going to go ahead and borrow money at no charge to us and then throw it at this and then we're going to take those returns and pay it off over you know a certain amount of time if i can borrow two million dollars and then pay it off in monthly installments of thirty dollars a month you best believe i'm borrowing two million dollars and still owe just two million dollars or like 2.4 million dollars whatever are you kidding me of course that's i mean an exaggeration but that's that's the vibe that was the 2010s um 2020s have not been like that they obviously had the pandemic uh have had some huge inflation jumps uh i mean this this is a different decade and with that it's led to a a big push back to fundamentals and like hey are you actually making more money than you're burning and disney has several areas where that's not or wasn't the case but streaming was the biggest right streaming is is and it never has been profitable for the most part, right? Like, it's just not. It, it's really not. That's why they're raising the cost of Disney Plus. Uh, that's why they're raising Netflix costs. They're trying to get people to, just so you're aware, right? Like the ad-free tiers of all these things are going up and up and up. But they don't want you to 
by the ad-free tiers. That's why they're raising those prices. They want you to go to the ad tiers because if enough users are on the ad tiers, then the advertisers will, just like cable, pay those companies money to advertise on them. That's really where they want people to sign up. They do not, they are not raising prices of ad-free tiers just so they can make more profit. I mean, they are, but it's not just so they can do that. It's also to deter you from sticking with the ad-free tier so that you can see the lower price and being like, well, why would I pay that much for like that much more for ad-free? I don't need, you know, to be free of ads that much. I'm going to go ahead and pay this lower rate. And then I'm a user who will see various ads. And then I, as Disney or Netflix or whoever, can go to an advertiser and say, hey, we have 5 million users right now. And you know, next quarter, we're projected to add another 2 million who are going to be on the ad tier. And on that ad tier, you can buy space here and get your product in front of 7 million people. And it's only going to grow because we're going to raise our ad free tier, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like that's, that's the real end goal. They want more people on the ad tiers than paying less money to them directly than, you know, the ad free. I don't think pe people really get that. I feel like a lot of people assume they want as many people as possible on the ad free tier. No, they don't. That's why they're raising that up and leaving the ad tier at a lower price. Saying like, sorry, we got to do this for profitability, but like you could still do this ad tier. Well, of course, because that's what they want. So that's kind of the move here for all streaming services. It's part of the reason why Netflix added ads. It's also why they're cracking down on passwords. Netflix already did. Disney Plus is going to, right? Sharing passwords, gone. This is what happens with every startup. It, it's literally the way startups work. When they have to become actually profitable, they take away all the things that for years you have loved about them. It, a movie pass. Go look up movie pass. If you want to go on a complete detour and, and just see how awesome the original movie pass was and then what it turned into, go check it out. It was a completely losing endeavor. They went bankrupt. It was sad. But like, man, movie pass was like the bomb if you like to go watch movies for a while. But it was unsustainable. That's the problem. So Disney, again, making all these cuts, trying to make streaming more profitable, has basically, you have Iger saying, you know, I'm going to buy Hulu outright, which Disney has an agreement with Comcast because Hulu's this weird monster child of Disney and Comcast where they both own part of it because it was trying to compete with Netflix. Well, Disney's going to pay a stupid amount of money to buy Hulu. I think it's $9 billion, to buy out Comcast and get the rest of Hulu. Iger is committed to that. But on top of that, when you look at Iger's previous comments, right? ABC is for sale. Uh, almost all of its linear networks are for sale. They want to find a partner that will do direct to consumer for ESPN. So yes, they have the new pen deal, but really they're trying to morph that into getting a strategic partner to help them go straight to consumer. So ESPN is just beaming in like its own streaming thing. Right. And with all that, <laughs> this is all happening at a time when, you know, Disney stock price is down and there are people 
including myself, if I'm looking at this correctly, based on Iger's previous comments, who see Iger as stripping things down, not only to become more profitable, but to sell. Yes, that is right. Um, Iger has talked before about merging Disney with another particular company, which we'll talk about in a sec. If you look at this from the outside, especially if you're looking at it through a mergers and acquisitions lens, an M&A lens, it certainly looks like something similar to if, like imagine it's not a former CEO coming in, trying to steer the ship the right way, et cetera, but that a new CEO or a private equity firm coming into a company and suddenly laying off a bunch of people, stripping down and trying to sell off a bunch of different business units it sees as failing, um, looking for strategic partners for specific deals and specific you know business units that might be failing, but it really wants to be profitable or believes is the future, aka ESPN. It looks just like a private equity firm coming in and like gutting a company to get it ready for sale. Iger once said he never wanted to go into the gambling space. He didn't think it was a good idea. The fact that they made this deal with Penn shows how desperate Disney is to start making streaming profitable and to fulfill this long-term vision, strategic vision. We don't know exactly what that is because, again, Iger has has said, "Oh, I'm not getting into gambling," and then made this deal, right? I mean, which happens. That's not a that's not a huge uh, knock on Iger, right? Like you're not gonna you're not gonna put all your cards on the table for everyone to see. That wouldn't be very good. Um, but outside looking in, it certainly looks like somebody looking to sell. Now, as to the company that Iger has talked about selling to in the past or envisioned a world where the companies could merge that company is apple and yeah it makes a lot of sense if you look at some of the synergies that they could create by you know with with apple's technology um i, I mean you could if and, and this is a big if regarding the metaverse and VR and all the stuff that's happening, right? Like if that starts to take off at some point, uh, Apple of course will be a player in that space. They just released that new uh, giant pod thing for virtual reality, um, augmented reality stuff. Like uh, you could do a ton with that and Disney properties, right? Uh, I mean, there's, there's, it makes sense that those two might eventually merge. And you think, well, I mean, it's Disney. I mean, it's this massive company. It doesn't need to merge. It's bought all these other things. It's spent 2010s acquiring Marvel, acquiring Pixar, all these other, like it was growing. It's a competitor. Sure. But it certainly the past year and a half has looked like it's a bloated competitor that now looks like, we're trimming it down for some reason. And that could be just to return to profitability, right? And get back to roots, et cetera. But it could also be to get it ready to move. Um, now, where that falls into the UFC deal, 
right where this comes full circle because i know again we got caught up in a disney disney trend but it's important to talk about because espn ufc etc is this puts Iger in a very interesting position for the ufc media rights negotiations right um if you're looking at it from the sense of okay i'm trying to cut costs and keep costs lower so i can be more attractive to apple so that apple can buy me you're probably not going to make a super crazy offer to retain the ufc unless you view it as critical right if you view the ufc as a critical piece which i mean for espn right now they certainly seem to be but if you view it as truly a like we cannot move forward without the ufc's streaming then yeah that's a big deal and i mean you you look at okay with the new company with wwe that's that's a lucrative enough offer for streaming and media rights we've got to grab all that right i mean if it is a key piece then sure you are making crazy bids you are going all out and you are making sure you get that media rights broadcast because you need it to go to Apple and be like, this is why ESPN makes sense for you to buy. And this is why it makes sense for you to buy Disney. That's one of our strongest properties, right? Because another possibility too, is that even though Iger has said, we're not selling ESPN, he could always change his mind there and say like, okay, Apple comes and makes him a crazy offer for ESPN. Sure. Because Apple has so much cash. They're one of the few companies right now that can go ahead and buy Disney or ESPN or what have you pretty easily. They are just sitting on a ridiculous amount of cash reserves. If they want to acquire a company of even a large, well-established company, they can do it without having to go. If they want to, they can go do it without having to go finance a bunch of debt right now, especially when debt is expensive. They can just say, no, I'm just going to go ahead and take this gigantic pile of money I have and throw it at Disney and how great Disney is ours. They could hypothetically do that easily, easily. And so this, you know, raises multiple questions for Iger, where is the UFC considered that critical for ESPN survival? Because if it is yeah, they're going to go all out, they're going to probably come near double what they're paying right now. And they're going to give UFC whatever. If it's not, they're probably going to come in with a weaker offer. And UFC is almost certainly gone from ESPN. I think, barring any information about a potential Apple-Disney merger ahead of time, I think the media rights deal will indicate, right? It'll be a chicken and egg thing, I guess, is... Either we're going to hear that Apple is interested in acquiring uh, Disney or ESPN or both. I mean, probably both, et cetera. And so that yields, you know, probably them stepping in and maybe doing Apple TV plus, right? Like, or um, Apple plus stuff, because again, they have their own streaming service, right? So that complicates things a little bit. Um but I would imagine if that's happening, uh, they make a bigger offer 
or they utilize the fact that they have two people bidding on the UFC to kind of try and lower the rights deals that they give the UFC, but, but they definitely want it. Um, and it's kind of a, a known deal. Otherwise, if we don't hear anything regarding that, then depending on where the UFC goes and what the rumors are regarding an offer from ESPN to UFC is uh, for partnership renewal, I think that would indicate whether or not uh, that's going to lead to an Apple acquisition of Disney, if that makes sense, right? Like if so, if we find out that Iger is cutting costs everywhere and suddenly he spent like, you know, two and a half or three billion over seven years for UFC rights, I would bet crazy money that Apple is going to acquire Disney because that's so much money. And if you're going to stand on your own, that's probably too much tr- given what you're saying you're trying to do. Um, on the other hand, if they come in and it's like, well, ESPN only offered like a 1.2 mil and we haven't heard any, or not 1.2 mil, uh, like maybe, maybe 2 billion to the UFC and UFC ended up with 2.5 billion from a competitor. Well, okay. Then probably Apple's not going to necessarily buy them. Cause because Iger's much more, much more focused on on just you know keeping costs low because he thinks he's going to have to survive for a while. Unless unless Apple really has no interest in UFC rights, but I can't imagine that's the case. I mean, then again, if they're trying to go for bigger rights like NFL, I mean, there's there's lots of different possibilities. I shouldn't I shouldn't rule all that out. But all this to say is is that it will not just be in my mind, probably it will not just be whether or not UFC and ESPN can come to an agreement based on their previous partnership and their, you know, their current relationship. I think most of this is going to come down to Apple's long-term strategic vision and whether or not Iger is truly trying to just lean up Disney and then build it into another powerhouse or lean up Disney so it can be sold to Apple. And then, yeah, you could see, I could easily see UFC and WWE on Apple Plus or on ESPN through Apple Plus. Lots of different possibilities there, but... But yeah, I mean, is what it is. It, it's just crazy stuff. Let me know your thoughts on all this because it's a ton of stuff, I know. Uh, but let me know, and we'll, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. All right, next thing we're going to talk about, and we're going to talk about it just briefly, but important for us to go over, is uh, the the discussion around. PFL potentially buying Bellator. So a lot of rumors flying around, a lot of reports saying, oh, it's a done deal. It's going to happen. PFL is going to announce they're acquiring Bellator. Bellator 298 or 299 will be their last one. Um, You know, John Nash said he was hearing certain things regarding this would be Bellator's last event. That was just, I think, two weekends ago. Uh, and that they were to announce something. Scott Coker came out and said, no, no, that's not the case. We're still going to do many more events, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've heard mixed reports, uh, you know, 
rumors I have heard uh, is that I've heard the deal was kind of not dead on arrival, but always had hurdles that were probably not going to get overpassed um, or overcome rather uh, that, you know, despite all of this going on, yes, it was going to get done, but they were going to essentially just remain completely separate companies. And it was going to be kind of owned by the Qatari investment, you know, firm basically buying both companies and, and running them separately, not PFL acquiring Bellator, so to speak, um, that they came very close and then everything fell apart. And, you know, Bellator is basically dead in the water and being dissolved and everybody's like leaving and going different places, et cetera. So many rumors. So, so, so many rumors saying so many different things. Um, as of right now, right, if we're looking at just actual face value stuff, it still looks like they're completely two separate companies. In terms of what we know, um, I know not that long ago, I said I believed Bellator was still profitable given that they had kind of turned a profit finally in 2018, 2019. And basically up through the DAZN deal they had, but later on I've learned, uh, which I've talked about at least one other time on the podcast, but just important to reiterate that they are not so profitable. In fact, right now they're burning through a ton of cash, partially because since they're being shown on Showtime, which is an in-house network for Viacom, they're not getting any extra media rights deals, right? That's the downside to essentially showing and owning, you know, a sports property is great. We own it and we can, you know, cut production costs. We don't have to pay somebody else, you know, for media rights deals, like perfect. We can use our own. But we also don't get, if we're the owner of the actual sports property, we also don't get the media rights fee. So we have to rely on advertisers and, you know, linear TV has been struggling big time. Obviously, you have Showtime essentially going away and it becoming all, I think, Paramount Plus, I believe. Um, Like, I mean, that's essentially just what's happening. More consolidation, similar to Disney, similar to all the other apps, HBO Max with Discovery Plus going from HBO, you know, HBO max to whatever it's called now. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it's just consolidation. And so when it comes down to it at this point, we're in a scenario where, um, yeah, Bellator is losing a lot of money. They're not really marketing probably because of the lost money, like marketing big events that well, other than, you know, just, basic standard marketing, nothing like over the top, nothing, no big hype stuff like they used to. Um, They're not going out making acquisitions like they were before. They went on that spree of trimming some of the more homegrown guys for bigger names like you all Romero and Anthony Johnson, RIP. And, you know, some of those other guys, that's not the case anymore. They've kind of just, you know, they're still hosting events and they still have, you know, good fighters on their roster, but it's, definitely seems at least from public perception, right. That they've fallen out of the number two spot. They used to be the day de facto number two promotion clear in a way you knew they had the second best roster. They were, they were the destination for MMA outside of UFC. They were the first stop. That's kind of, you know, falling to the wayside. Um, PFL, is now more viewed as a number two promotion, especially with their growth, their signing of Francis Ngannou, the involvement of Jake Paul, talk about doing a 
you know, Nate Diaz, Paul MMA fight, which I can roll my eyes out a million different times. It's still a big deal. Still a lot more perception out there that like, Hey, this is, you know, a big thing. The, the signings that they've gone on. I mean, it definitely seems like they've switched spots and that Bellator has kind of fallen off to three or four, depending on where you want to rank one with their stuff going on. Right. Um, but again, so many rumors about what's happening here. I honestly don't know. I, I have not heard anything close enough to sources um, that, you know, I can lean one way or the other. I, I, I will say I do think it's happening that PFL will acquire Bellator, but I don't have enough. It's not like I've, I've talked to certain people where I'm like, Oh, this is, you know, this is not a, a, some of the situations I've made, I've been, pretty hundred percent on or near hundred percent after talking to certain people or looking at certain things where I've been like, yep, this is going to happen. Right. Like I knew, I knew Francis Ngannou was not going to renew his contract and was going to go box. I knew that. Um, uh, yeah, that, that was a, I could sit there and tell you like, mark my words this is what's happening. And it did, which is great. Um, but this is, is a much more ambiguous situation and I don't have the, connections um or the time to really pursue the connections i do have um to really nail down what's happening with this deal i expect them to merge i do at some point it makes too much sense especially with bellator being up for sale and if the qataris are involved with pfl and they get give them a big round of funding sure because that's a, a easy access to a wealth of good fighters outside of the UFC that can be showcased and added into the PFL's current roster to make some of these tournaments more enticing for the deeper hardcore fans. Right. Um, you know, if you're a hardcore hardcore, we've talked about the tiers. If you're a hardcore hardcore, you're not even looking, they're not even looking at you as much. They're wanting you to be engaged enough to watch, which is like the media is, is super hardcore MMA junkies. Sure. You're, you're going to, um, you're going to watch, but they're trying to get to that. You know, let's say there are eight total tiers and eight is the hardcore. They're not worried about that. They're trying to get the seven, six, five tier right now. Right. Um, trying to get the one, two, and three of the super casual ones with a Jake Paul, Nate Diaz, MMA fight. You know, that's bringing those guys in, uh, Francis and Ganu, you're probably trying to get your twos and threes, but, Right now, if PFL acquires Bellator, it's targeting the 765 tier of you're a hardcore MMA fan or you're into MMA, but you know, you you watch you'll watch UFC events, uh, you'll watch, but you'll also watch Bellator, you also watch MMA or PFL and one. It's just you you want good events, right? You're you're not the person that's necessarily gonna watch every UFC card, but you're going to watch you know, good UFC cards, or you're going to watch every UFC card and maybe the occasional other card, as long as it's worth your while. And if you get enough former UFC names or enough good Bellator names, well, okay, I'll go ahead and watch that too. Those are the types of fans they're, they're aiming for. So that being said, this merger, if it does happen, I've seen so many things and so many statements by people saying uh, there were, there was a story, um, 
forget exactly who wrote it on a blog, but uh, I mean, uh, sorry, is that essentially it was like, this is a way they could close the viewership gap long-term and all this stuff. It, it, and it would give, it would give, you know, scale to, to PFL. So I don't, I just, there is still a notion. Um, and John Nash might hate me for saying this, but uh, we might just disagree at this point. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, there is a notion, in my opinion, that if you acquire the best, actually best ranked fighters, and we're talking like Fight Matrix or ranked on hardcore websites, right? Like um, Fight Matrix is the most well-known one, but let's say Tapology or, or Sure Dog, us, right? Like um, you take all of our things together and you say, these are our highest ranked fighters, there is still a mindset if you acquire the best fighters, if if you put Francis Ngannou and AJ McKee and the the Pitbull brothers and John Jones and uh, Israel Adesanya and all this stuff, if we get them all in one place, then we're going to have a, a banger promotion and that's really what fans will flock to. And I disagree with that statement. I think that statement was true even 20 years ago or 15 years ago, but now I mean, maybe even 10, if you're thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. 10 years ago, I would argue that that statement's probably true, but I think at this point, the UFC's brand has become so entrenched and this goes back to the fighter acquisition stuff, right? That like, unless you're pulling all of the stars together, it's not going to make that much of a difference. And really it's going to be about pulling the UFC stars, which like that's, that's my big thing is it's not that Bellator ratings have been sky high. I remember when AJ McKee beat Patricio Pitbull and people were like, that's a star making moment. You have, I mean, it was surreal, right? Like it was, it was, you watched that and you had people compare it to Connor and Aldo, um, the, the first fight, obviously the second fight, not so much, uh, but um, you, you had, it was this giant thing, right? And people thought for sure, that's the breakout performance for AJ McKee. This is where he transcends, you know, Bellator holding him back, being in Bellator, holding him back. And here he's going to make a name for himself and become this super popular fighter. And he never did. He never did. Mind you, his next fight was not so great. Right. Um, when they ran it back, but like he never transcended. It was not a breakout moment. It wasn't the Connor Aldo moment, right? If Connor goes on to lose his next fight after Aldo, it hurts him, but he's still like, he has that moment in the, the spotlight. He has that giant moment in the spotlight that no one can take away from him. If, you know, if he goes on to, you know, I mean, which I guess he did. I mean, he, he I believe, did he, he fought Nate next, right? Yeah. He fought Nate next. Cause he went up and already got hit. So he did lose his next fight. Is that right? I think so. So yeah, I mean, geez, uh, embarrassing. Uh, I'm going to have to look that up now while we're on this, which is a rare thing I do on this podcast, but I'm going to have to, cause I am dead set on it, but he, you know, he still had his moment of spotlight no matter what if he loses that fight after um, Aldo. 
Which yeah, he did. He fought. He fought Nate Diaz in one one ninety six. But he was still um he was the star. That was the star making moment for Connor. And then they do they run it back, and it's a massive fight. And then he goes on to fight. But but Connor becomes a star in that moment. McKee never did. And that's because Bellator doesn't have the brand power that the UFC does. Now, did he amongst the hardcore hardcores and like MMA journalists? Yes. Much like Kayla Harrison, much like many other fighters outside of the UFC in the media circles and the hardcore fan base. Yeah. He, he, he garnered a following. He still is regarded as one of the best, you know, featherweights and lightweights and fighters out there. But it has to go further than that to actually be monetarily worthwhile in a lot of ways. And the thing about Bellator being bought by PFL is that if PFL buys Bellator, great. That means you have some of these guys fighting really good, like the best of PFL guys, and it makes it pretty awesome. Similar to Verizon Bellator, right? I love those shows. Great time. And you have you have some of the best fighting the best in the world. Not just, oh, they're outside the UFC, like in the world. But it doesn't translate to big booming ratings and big monet, monetary gains. And that's the illusion that I think a lot of people are under. It's like, oh, if PFL acquires Bellator, then they're gonna like really make some, you know, make some inroads and and you know, start to wear away and eat away at the UFC market share. I don't see it. I don't, I honestly don't see it. No metric that is out there currently makes me believe that a company that is losing money buys another company that is losing even more money and neither is doing super well ratings wise. That leads to eroding UFC market share. And even if you don't want to say they're going to erode UFC market share, it's going to yield growth. That I can see a little bit more argument for, right? Because more hardcores are going to be interested in the PFL playoffs if you have more recognizable names for them. Like if you have a former Bella, if you have a Patricio Pitbull uh, finding a Brandon Laughlin, right? right? Like that's an intriguing matchup for the hardcores that may not watch every day. So yes, I could see that, but I don't see it to be this big booming growth. In order to do that, you need to attract casual viewers, which I don't think this does. I just don't think it does. Does it help PFL still? Yes. I think it marginally helps them, and I think it will come down to how much they are willing to spend. But it's not like, wow, they're going to get all these name guys, and it's going to, you know, it's going to really deepen their roster. Like, yeah, it will in terms of fight matrix and, and, you know, hardcore fan base, but the casual fans, no, the, the UFC brand has transcended all of that. You have so many people saying, I train UFC. You have Stephen A. Smith on ESPN saying training UFC. The UFC won the brand war. It's over. The only way you erode that is you take away the big UFC players. Anyone outside you could get, in my opinion, you can get, every other ranked fighter outside of the UFC in a promotion, right? Outside of, of the top guys and the very, and I'm talking like number one or number two, you could even have number one, which I think 
has happened in some cases, right? Like number one outside in, in the world, number, but they're outside of the UFC. At this point, PFL, Bellator, again, I'm leaning PFL will acquire Bellator, but uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it will be this big powerhouse everyone assumes it'll be. Let me know your thoughts. Let me know if you think that um, the merger is going to happen. You think it won't happen? We'd love to hear from those people. Do you think it's going to be this big powerhouse? What I mean, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But right now, I've got nothing to indicate it's going to be this amazing, you know, competitor to the UFC that I've seen some people make it out to be. It, it'll be a big deal in the actual industry space, and it will allow the UFC to focus in just on one competitor um, that they'll at least have to take note of, right? Probably similar to how they had to take note of Bellator a little bit when Bellator came on the scene, but I don't think it really changes too much of the dynamic. I think if you take away, if there's four main competitors in the space, um, and not to say that promotions like KSW or LFA or those guys aren't doing you know great stuff, but take away the four biggest well-known competitors in the space. You might see KSW fill fill in, right? Like kind of move into that third, fourth tier. Um, but I, I don't see it being that you've got this new real giant player, at least among more casual fans. Hardcores, yes. It will be much more entertaining um, tournament-wise. It, it can, who knows what they'll do with Bellator's full roster, right? Cause obviously tournament, not enough tournament spots, unless you're going to really expand the tournament length, which maybe they do. Uh, who knows? There's lot, lots of different ways you can play with it, but uh, don't see it being a true competitor of the UFC, not even in the long term. personally. Let me know how you guys feel about it. All right. Last thing we're going to talk about super quick because I'm going over on time here is, is Sean O'Malley a superstar? Um, look, he's gotten a big push by the UFC, the fact they released his KO clip of um, against Aljo on platforms, they, they almost never do that. So that, that is them signaling like, yep, we want this out there so everybody can see Sean O'Malley knocking out Aljamain Sterling. Uh, and as the new Bantamweight champion, we want this as far visibility as possible. That's them giving them their biggest push and sign of, yep, we're going to push O'Malley to the moon. Um, to be a next, the next big thing. Uh, he was also on first take today with um, Stephen A. Smith. I am sure he will get pushed on to, wouldn't be surprised if he ends up on talk shows, right? Yeah. Well, where it makes sense to put him on talk shows anyway, given Sean's personality and, and style. But I mean, it, it's a scenario where, um, Rogan actually is where I see Sean O'Malley going next. Um, but it's, it's a scenario where, yeah, it seems pretty clear cut that they want him as kind of the new guard, big pushing a star. I, yes, the gate for Boston was big. It was like 7.25 million. Somebody compared to Dominic Cruz, 1.3 million. Uh, I mean, there's been a ton of inflation and greedflation of, of companies, you know, getting extra profits through that stuff. So it's hard, like ticket prices, have been jacked up a ton, right? Um, and with scarcity of events too, smart by Endeavor, and they've talked about it, where they essentially are doing less events and 70 or 80% of 
people that attend UFC events are coming from out of, you know, a particular city or state. So, I mean, you, if you limit the number of events, it changes things quite a bit, right? Um, it, it makes it so that <laughs> if, you, if you limit the number of events available, you're going to have a scarcity where people are going to buy more tickets and at higher prices. So for a, any one single event. So with that all being said, um, if they start touting pay-per-view numbers, okay, then I'm interested for sure. Then I want to hear some things because... You know, if they start touting like this sold UFC 292 sold 500k or 600k, yeah, that kind of confirms it. He's definitely a bigger name. His merchandise has always moved, right? He's always always had a following, so he's definitely a bigger name. He was the number one. He was trending number one on YouTube, I think. Uh, his his KO was. So that's clear. But is he going to reach? John Jones at the height of John Jones mania status or out of sign status. I, my guess is right now he's on the trajectory for Adesanya. Um, that same vein. Will it hold up? It depends on how well he does and how often he defends. Right. But I, I don't see him going way beyond Adesanya. Um, he might have some, more success but just because he's u.s based but even then it's not like you know adesanya's charisma and um personality didn't translate over to the united states audience so it's hard for me to say i i don't see him as a crossover star he's not mcgregor he's not a diaz beating mcgregor and enough of a character to kind of like piggyback off of that or a holly Holm who beats um you know ronda and then kind of gets put into more of the spotlight, right? He, he didn't beat, he didn't beat some unbeatable 135-er. He bought, he beat Aljo who had a great run, but was not, you know, also himself booed, right? Like, I, I mean, it wasn't exactly the most popular champion. Um, so Honestly, it's one of those scenarios where it's going to be interesting. He'll he'll need a rival to really get to the next level, I think. I don't know where that rival is. Um, but, I mean, he's not... I, I'm not... I'm definitely not going to declare him a crossover star. I will declare him right now on the path, the same path as Adesanya. I've seen enough metrics and seen enough hype, seen enough... Um, anecdotal evidence right i saw a couple of bars around here in the austin area which i mean they're generally the, the austin area bars that show ufc are pretty you know steadfast but i saw one or two extra ones that were just showing this one i was like okay or we're advertising this one which was okay the last time i saw that happen was i, I think an adesanya fight or not even an adesanya fight it might have been way back beforehand um special events though, right? Like it means it's a bigger anecdotally. It seems to be bigger pay-per-views. They get shown at these couple of places every once in a blue moon. So, um, that being the lowest rated of evidence because it's anecdotal, but then the other metrics I've seen, social media metrics, merchandise numbers, things of that nature. Yeah. He's definitely on the, the Adesanya path. I don't know how he's going to translate pay-per-view by wise. And I don't know, if he'll be able to maintain the same momentum Adesanya did for so long, right? Cause Adesanya has even dipped a bit, 
We we know that uh, Adesanya versus Whitaker two did not beat Charles Gagey, right? Like we we know that much. So it's 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 hard. It's hard to say um, where his popularity is going to lie too, because I mean Adesanya also had like plenty of of people supporting him the entire country in New Zealand and and. When he wasn't fighting Whitaker, my guess is Australia too probably got behind him a fair amount. Um, Oceania, whereas like, I mean, it's U.S. for O'Malley. It's much harder to rally everyone in that regard. So that's where I think O'Malley is right now. Let me know if you agree or disagree, if you think he's a bigger star or not a bigger star, but that's where I would rate Sean O'Malley at this point. We'll see. I mean, I'm excited to see what happens. It, it was an interesting event. It was a big KO. Their UFC's given him the full marketing push. We'll see. We'll see what happens. All right, guys, well, happy to be back. I know this was a long episode with lots of different tangents I had to go on, but I hope you found it informative. I hope the analysis was something new. Um, I know there's a lot of information about this stuff. I try and bring a slightly different perspective, but always appreciate you guys listening, watching. If you're on YouTube, hit the like, subscribe. Uh, bell notification is, is the subscribe. Sorry, I also just, it's been a while. I've been dealing with stuff. I'm not going to go into it. No point. But, um, you know, hit that. Just, just, you know, do the things you normally do. Uh, all right, guys. Appreciate you listening and watching. As always, if you're on YouTube, hit that like and subscribe. Uh, if you are um, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, any of that fun stuff, always appreciate you guys listening. Love you guys. Know it's been a while. Not even going to get into it, but again, uh, happy to be back. Very exciting. Hope I brought a slightly different perspective to all the stuff. I know we went down a lot of tangents, but I thought it was important to cover them all. Let me know your thoughts on this stuff. Love your comments. Love the interactions I've been having on the more recent videos. Uh, keep that up, and, and I will keep knocking this stuff out. Ask me any questions you want. Bring up any topics you want me to cover. Love it. So as always, until next time, get money.